0: Hello and welcome to another episode of MetaViews, where really we look at the intersection of politics, culture, economics, and society so that we can better understand where we are and where we wanna go. MetaViews as a concept really speaks to the big picture. And today's guest is someone who I think is doing a fantastic job of fostering literacy and fostering people's sort of sense of the big picture. Alberto Cotica uh, runs the Sci-Fi Economics Lab, which I have to say, Alberto, I think is a fantastic concept unto itself. But in all honesty, the, the reason that I know about you, the reason that I wanted to have this conversation today Is I felt that you made a fantastic critique, uh, a really brilliant articulation of artificial intelligence and blockchain technology, which are two topics that we cover quite regularly here on MetaViews as we try to really debunk the mythology of technology and the way in which these words almost like magic, are used to kind of dazzle people and make them kind of, you know, obey the the gods of technology. (laughs) And I felt that you articulated this argument, which, you know, before we even get into who you are or what you do, I wanted you to start with this argument because I thought it was not only brilliant, but provided a fascinating intro into your mind and, and the way in which you approach a problem. So... Tell me, Alberto, what do you think of artificial intelligence and blockchain technology and and their role in the world that we're currently in?
1: Okay, so hello Jesse. Thanks for having me. Hello, everyone listening. Uh, So this uh, this reflection on AI and the blockchain starts from um, a a series of discussion that uh, I've been having with with several people. in these discussions, there was an, an increasing uh, restlessness and 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 uh, and worry, which is okay. So we've got all these promises of this technology will change everything, and we can do so many things. We can solve so many problems. They are purported as general purpose, so in, in theory we could use them for anything. But then, when you look at what product they are actually delivering, they are not so nice. I mean. Uh, uh, AI, uh, uh, one critique that has been given to to the article that you like is the definition is very fuzzy and in fairness I did use the definition by Mateos Garcia and his fantastic data data piece Uh, and his definition is in in turn borrowed from Brian Arthur. It means machines that act reasonably under a wide uh, range of circumstances. It is true, it covers you know, from spam filters down to deep neural networks that you would use to make deep fakes. But in practice, what we are looking at is the post 2012 Cambrian explosion where 80% plus of the AI papers were published. So after 2012, and that uh, has been in common with the blockchain. The idea that this is not just a technology, it is a technology that also corresponds to a certain scene, to business models, to a certain network of actors, companies, investors, governments, and they also map to a certain list of use cases. And when you look at the shipped product, the actual impact on our society of these things, you see that by and large, artificial intelligence has delivered surveillance, and blockchain has delivered cryptocurrencies, which are depends on. I mean, here you, you can you can get in value theory discussions uh, with with, uh, with uh, finance, uh, future of finance people. Um, I am but, standing... but you
0: poetically you, you you summed it up in a word that, that that I think really evokes what cryptocurrency has delivered us.
1: It, well, yes, I, I stand with the people who think this is just a casino. This is yes, a, yes. You know, speculative assets, uh, smorgasbord of speculative assets. And I stand with the people that say this stuff is not good. This stuff is a net loss to society. Even before you start factoring in the, the, uh, the bunch of scams, uh, The the... the the, the very shady atmosphere that is in in, in those uh, in those scenes, the monetization model for ransomware, the insane consumption of electricity, uh, and, and so on and so forth. The, the, the uh, uh, resuscitation of dead fossil fuel plants that burn waste coal. I mean, how evil must you be in 2021 to put hundreds of millions of dollars in that? <laughs> You, you really need to be an asshole. Come, in. Well, Come on.
0: And you have to be particularly greedy. And, and, and what I love about the, the notion of the casino is that the casino always wins, right? <laughs> like it's the better built mousetrap. And there's an ideology to these technologies that I think you also teased out, which is the self-serving nature, right? That in the case of blockchain, blockchain doesn't actually deliver anything other than wanting you to believe in blockchain. Right? Like it's this self-recurring kind of a philosophy that it's like Bitcoin will be super valuable if all of you buy and hold Bitcoin. Without arguing as to why, without noting the environmental destruction that such an infrastructure requires. And to your point, the only thing it offers people is a casino in which fundamentally they're going to lose. Right? Like at some point that price is going to fall back down to zero. And so what was interesting in your phrase of the sociopathic innovation, right, is both a delusion, but also a kind of uh, not evil, not maliciousness. I use the word greed, but it's a malice that there are people who are behind this who are either so blind to their desire for power or so deluded by their own propaganda that they think that these things will ultimately lead to good stuff. What I found interesting about your essay was not just that it was a a radical argument coming out of left field, but that it seemed common sense. That you seem to be articulating uh, uh, what so many other critics have been now finally able to say, which is, wait a minute, where's the good stuff? Like we've heard the hype, we've heard the myths. Where's the payoff? Like put up or shut up, tech industry, because the consequences, the side effects, the the political, social impacts of this stuff seems to be pretty bad. Uh, this is all more or less correct. Let's say that you seem to be even
1: more critical than I am. So uh, um, I, I I I was kind of looking over people's shoulder in the early days of, of Bitcoin, and some of them were, were well meaning so they had, they, had this dream, they had this dream of self-sufficiency, yeah. you know? It is a libertarian ideology that they were standing on. You can, you can also understand where they're coming from. I mean, do you really wanna be trusting governments? I mean, I'm European, um, I, I can see more of an argument, but if you're american if you are you know in certain countries but even i mean I'm, even in italy come on do i really how far do we really <laughs> pass the italian government yeah. can we make something better and so bitcoin remember it started for, as money so the initial idea was we will make money we will make we we'll power the transactions of an economy without a central authority so that had some good uh, uh, Good ideas, good values in it, but uh, in, in practice, the people that co- coalesced around that early dream were people that interpreted this in a, in a sort of American libertarian key. And uh, what, what uh, this, this type of libertarian says is, you should not, you should be able to not trust anybody. It's like very individualistic. You no know, society doesn't exist. So we we have a cohesion world in the sense of the cost theorem, which is made of contractualized transactions regulated in cash. Here's my cash. Here's your here's your product. We don't we don't owe anything to each other. Nobody owes anything to anybody. We are all free agents. Now this is a dystopia. So yeah. these societies do exist. They exist yeah. in the organized criminality, for example, yeah. where there is yeah, nobody. Yeah. To monopolize force and to enforce your rights. So this is possible but it's really a bad place to live. And so uh, we can now see this with more clarity. At the time I myself uh, was a kind of, and still am a decentralist in a way, the, the, the decentralist dream of, of the internet, but uh, now we have a, a, we can look back and, and, and see at what has happened. Uh, so the, the Apollo program delivered the man on the moon in nine years. Uh, Satoshi Nakamoto's essay is at this point, I believe 13 years old. So where's the man on the moon? Now, now, now we are at the point where we can really ask that question uh, in good faith without being uh, you know, entrenched in ideology or another. In practice, there's good people, there's bad people, there's some of my you know, brothers in arms that went into the blockchain craze. They haven't delivered.
0: Well, and, and allow me to use that, observation to pivot us towards literacy and 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 i i I offer two examples as a bridge to bring us there on the one hand i I too was an optimist both with ai and blockchain you know when they were originally sort of entering in the public consciousness as a small d democrat i saw the potential right i saw the way in which they could enable and empower and 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 allow for greater participation But you touched upon, I think, a fascinating dynamic in your essay, which I'll call a kind of paradox of technology, that as individuals, especially literate individuals, AI has benefited me, right? I can use search engines to find stuff. I can use social media to find people and knowledge. And blockchain as an individual, if I were to be a Bitcoin investor, which I'm not, that might have also empowered me. But on the level of society, AI and blockchain has been terrible, right? AI has led to surveillance. AI is leading to discrimination. Blockchain has the environmental impact. To your point about the, the, the libertarian vision of society it presents is a dystopia. So we're seduced by the convenience of individual empowerment. While we fail to see the social effects and we fail to see the impact of society, that to your point, now that it's 10 years on, okay, now we can see it. The researchers are catching up. The the critical scholars are going, wait a minute, we need regulations. We need policies. So this is where, and I'll ask this as a two-point question, this is where I see literacy as fundamental to helping us see this stuff of helping us transcend our individual perspective and recognize society's impact, recognize political economics impact. So on the one hand, how do we foster greater literacies of AI, of blockchain, so that people can be critical? So that they can say, no, 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 that's hype, that's mythology, I don't believe you, where's the proof? And, and, and how, how, this is not me getting into the sci-fi economics lab, which I want to get into, but Alberto, where did you develop these advanced literacies? Because here I am like 10 minutes into a conversation with you and I'm taking for granted how easy critical thinking comes to you, how easy it is for you as someone who claims to, who outright says, Hey, I'm not primarily a technologist. And yet you've articulated a critique of AI and blockchain that I'm calling brilliant. You know, to your point, you just looked over the shoulder of other people you thought were brilliant. But where did Alberto get these advanced literacy and critical thinking capabilities from? You know, perhaps you take for granted that you have these superpowers. But part of what we do here at MetaViews is really try to tease that out. So, that we could think about it from a pedagogy perspective, we could think about it from an education perspective, and, and foster that kind of thinking on a, on a broader scale.
1: Huh, good point. Well, um, I guess the, the price of, uh, of progress, of technical progress, is, is eternal vigilance, uh, not to, to, to paraphrase an American, an American founder. Me is not superpowers at all. My 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 resources come from, from two directions. So in in the in the case of AI, that came a bit more natural because I I I do have a some formal training in statistics, and uh, now we call it data science. But at the, at the time it was more statistics, and if you ever have de- doubled in 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 handling data you know data are messy, are dirty, are easily corrupted, uh, it, it, over-interpretation looms, you can, be, you know, the, the famous lies, down lies, and statistics, now you can say lies, okay. are lies. statistics and AI, classifiers, because it, 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 it is, even if you're trained, you're formally trained in the discipline, uh, good luck uh, really uh, checking all the the steps that somebody presenting a result to you made and, and been able to control of them. Huh? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Uh, when uh, mm, genetic algorithms uh, were proposed uh, by John Holland, uh, you know, the Santa Fe crowd back in the day, that was already, they, they immediately flagged it. they say, the stuff kind of works, we have no idea why, and this is by design because we allow the code to mutate. And so, a, a, a similar process, functionally similar, algorithmically different, but functionally similar happens when you train an algorithm. The algorithm learns to optimize by, um, by running these uh, fitting uh, models between a, a training data set uh, and, and uh, an initial version of the model, but then the algorithm itself uh, keeps changing. And then what you end up with is something that no human person can really interpret. And this is made even worse by the fact that uh, uh, where you see the uh, the applications, the useful applications of the stuff, is in cases where the variance is very high. Mm-hmm. So imagine the, the typical use case is this. Uh, you are looking at uh, the MetaView's website, and uh, you You see an ad, then you have a probability which is a prior 0.00001 to click on that ad. Then you change the ad, and the probability might be 0.000013 of clicking on that ad. So you will see that I click that the person clicks or not doesn't click, but there is a much more noise than signal. The only way to extract some kind of signal is to have a mass, an enormous mass of data, which is why these systems are so data greedy. And what that means is that if you get it wrong, good luck finding that you got it wrong, because <laughs> it's, uh, it's just a, 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 like a time deviation in an average, which is anyway very, very, uh, almost undistinguishable from zero to begin with. So normally we now have statistical instruments that will tell us this is really working You improved by s- some minimal percentage, that, the, the probability that somebody will click on that link. But then you get all, all the mess, all the statistical mess. Nobody ever plots residues, which is why you get uh, the, 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 the average is correct, but the the different errors are, are, are handled in different ways. And you have seen in America, you have seen a, a fantastic case of this in the case of a software for a parole. Mm-hmm. It turned out that the software for parole did predict reoffending, but it, it was much uh, more likely to predict erroneously that black people would reoffend and erroneously that white people would not reoffend. So, in, in average, the, the, the algorithm predicted well, but it discriminated.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So, the principle of fairness was not absurd. And another example from Europe is more recent, is this uh, Dutch government uh, attempt uh, to train uh, an algorithm in order to detect uh, fraud uh, on uh, welfare access. Mm -hmm. And then uh, they ran this thing and they found out, you know what, it's highly correlated with the zip code. And so what they do is they send the inspectors to the zip codes with the highest probability of offending, which are... The poor people. Mm -hmm. So what happens is that these these, uh, these, uh, uh, areas, they get an uh, over-policing phenomenon. Anyway, the strangers are very few. uh, Remember, you're talking about a small percentage of of positives. So it's, uh, yeah, you get get this clearly uh, biased uh, way of thinking. And that comes from data science.
0: Uh, Although to your point, while the errors may be few, the impacts may be exponential, right? Because the difference, while minuscule, can scale up when you think about how the program plays out. And to bring it back to literacy, again, you and I take for granted that we can connect those dots, right? That we can recognize that the reason that there's over-policing is due to an algorithmic error or the reason that there's a racist parole process is because of a flaw in the data. So what are the, you know, other than your training in data science, cause not all data science, not all data scientists are critical thinkers, right? Not like not if, if they were Silicon Valley, wouldn't be the mess that it is today. What are the other, I mean, we were joking before we went on about you being a, a recovering musician but do you think perhaps that your creative pursuits, that your your art influenced your ability to approach these problems in a creative way?
1: No, uh, the, the, the arts uh, taught me to be a player and not a referee. So they, they uh, got rid of the notion of the scholar or the citizen as an impartial, yeah. being hovering over the battlefields. Oh, you guys are right, but also you guys are kind of right. In the end, it, you are on the battlefield yourself, you have to pick sides, uh, and sometimes this is a, a difficult process. No, the, the other great um, teachers are the economic anthropologists. Yeah. So, in, 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 I, I grew up in an era of aphasia of economics. I'm an economist by training, but, but economics had very little to say uh, about the world for a very long time. I know this is a harsh judgment. I don't want to go into that right now, but I can I can articulate if you want. Uh, economics has been uh, orthodoxy driven. So there was a model, and that was the only game in town, and everybody had to play the game. If you don't play the game, you don't get published in the major journals, you don't get tenure, blah, blah. Meanwhile, economic anthropologists were actually going around and asking, okay, but does it work? I mean, forget about is it it, good, does it work for you? For example, structural adjustment programs imposed by the IMF, the World Bank, uh, American Treasury on developing countries. You had been claiming, if you do this stuff, it's painful. You have to liberalize your capital markets. You have to privatize your public services. The price of fuel will go up, the price of food will go up, it's painful. But you will get faster growth and more more ultimately more well-being for your citizens. Okay, how is it working out? <laughs> Again, the same question that we're asking to the blockchainers. So this yeah, is
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Where's it, the proof?
1: And and then you, you go in and you you if you don't go in, so the economists tend to think, well, it 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 must be working out, right? Because we did things according to the model, the model is right, therefore either it's working out, or if it's not working out we're not going deep enough, or uh, maybe we're not seeing it yet, it takes more time. But basically, they were putting themselves in the condition of 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 a believer. So yes, it was predicted, Nostradamus had predicted that the world would end yesterday, the world is still here, we have to review things that The the prophecy is still certainly correct. We are not understanding it right. Uh, But these guys, they were like willing to throw the model to the wolves if the model didn't work. Mm -hmm. And it didn't work. So now what I try to do is, okay, but what are your effects? How do you see them? You you said a world where people would certify themselves, blockchainers, no? A a world of decentralized power, for example, refugees. This was an early application. But we will completely improve on that. You know, the, the High Commissioner of, uh, for Refugees of the UN, they have these uh, massively bureaucratic processes. Never works. We can give people identities like this on the blockchain. And then once it's on the blockchain, it stays on the blockchain. It can never be tampered with, uh, great. So we, we don't have to trust these bureaucrats and their political reasonings. okay. So that means I can walk into a refugee camp with a laptop, running a node of a blockchain network, and say, so what's your name? You are uh, uh, Jesse Hirsch. Okay, Jesse Hirsch. Here's your passport, Jesse Hirsch. Done. Now, try traveling with that passport that I issued on my blockchain database. Nobody's going to accept it, unless the passport comes from a major government wielding a blockchain. Why? Because trust is needed, trustless societies don't work. And so once you have a trust and the major government is trusted enough to issue a passport, you no longer need the blockchain. It's completely redundant. You just need a printing press to print the dumb passports. That's it. So this is what uh, blockchain people uh, refer to as an oracle, which is an external trusted source that can make an initial entry into the blockchain. Okay, so now you have a trustless system that nevertheless relies on trusted oracles? Mm, probably not. Mm-hmm. It means you don't really have anything to offer other than a complicated, clever, to be sure, robust, to be sure, database architecture.
0: But it, it, you know, to your point, it can be difficult to overcome these orthodoxies. And, you know, for the the anthropologists, takes time to do that research. It takes time to prove that these you know, tried and true models are in fact full of shit and they, they don't have their substance to them. So I'm, I'm curious to bring the conversation to the sci-fi economics lab, because it it, it strikes me as both a, a fascinating uh, a way of approaching economics, but also an interesting way of dealing with these orthodoxies and, and an interesting way of perhaps creating alternatives to these orthodoxies. So where did the idea of the science fiction economics lab come from and and what's its sort of general mission or mandate? Well, it, it
1: comes from the, the long years of, uh, as I said, economics uh, aphasia and demobilization, so to speak. So economics was a super hot and an edgy discipline starting from let's say, the the uh, mid-17th century when the physiocrats in France kicked into gear, and then through the Smith period and the Marx uh, period, by by, by which I mean the the top uh, names in the field uh, which tended to come from moral philosophy or medicine, like his name, moral philosophy like like Smith, they, uh, they drew systems that didn't exist. And said we, we we can we can be we can make a better society. They had the notion of better because we were doctors or philosophers, uh, by um, reorganizing production and trade and consumption in a certain way. And then you had inspired uh, business people that would read the books of these people and would try to implement them. And we have you have people like Robert Owen in New Lamarck, which, which was kind of a socialist topian experiment. Uh, You have, of course, the the famous case of Friedrich Engels, who was Marx's co-author and friend. And then you have more recently people like Adriano Olivetti in Italy, who had a community movement, he called it, based around this kind of semi-utopian high-tech factory that he ran in, in, in Piedmont. And then this all went kind of dead. After the Second World War, give or take.
0: When the technocrats kind of took over.
1: Yeah, it, it, it was a, a a sort of convergence between uh, poor mathematics, uh, but the, the, the envy of mathematization that uh, economic academia had, and somebody figured out that uh, the neoclassical model uh, that emerged uh, immediately after the Second World War was quite convenient if you were on top of society, right? yeah. because it, it provided an ideological justification that you know rich people are rich because they are efficient, blah blah. Yes. Yes. Okay, so during this period, so there was not so much of this uh, utopian, uh, you know, ambitious, radical, let's redesign society idea in economics anymore, but there was a small cadre of science fiction authors with an economic inclination And these guys, they would dare to dream. Mm -hmm. So, the idea of the Science Fiction Economics Lab was, well, wow, Um, can we look into the stuff uh, and uh, maybe poke holes into it, see if it holds water, or is it uh, incentive compatible, is it uh, fantasy? Uh, And and so there is an analytical uh, drive. But the other drive was, We realized that unlike economics papers that you can read in journals, this approach to economics would answer a very important question, which is, okay, here's an economic system. How does it feel to live in it? Because if I say, well, you know, we could have a Tobin tax and uh, um, reduce uh, speculative trading, Mm The man in the street would ask me, "Okay, but why would I care? Does this mm-hmm. mean, what does it mean for me?"
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, these guys, they were building worlds for their novels—the worlds that to feel real, to feel vivid, to feel realistic—and mm-hmm. so they had to answer this question. And uh, we realized uh, that. Uh, form uh, something that gets proposed. And the opinion is based on what Dr. calls an architect's rendering of these different systems. So hence the Sci-Fi Economics Lab. Then, uh, pretty soon we found out, of course, these future economies are already here. People are trying to build them. They are local, they are hidden, they are strange, they are indigenous, they are whatever they are. Uh, there's you know co- new cooperatives, new municipalism in Europe, these two are the, the two the two big things. There's a lot of people that call themselves post-capitalist enterprises or entrepreneurs, myself included. Mm-hmm. And um, and so what are you do, what 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 have the, these people been doing? You can also do empirical sci-fi economics, by, by looking at it. And, and more often than not, you say, hey, this looks like the eco, eh, eco, ecological economics in the Mars trilogy by Kim Stanley Robinson. Mm-hmm. This has elements of The Walkaway Wars by Cory Doctorow. Mm-hmm. This looks like something from Octavia Butler. And then, I mean, it's a, it's a very nerdy thing. Uh, take it for from, from what it's worth. But it does um, inspire good conversation.
0: But I mean, it also combines some of the anthropology that you were describing, because you're thinking about the human impact, you're thinking about the human lives, and the science fiction part sort of gives permission to speculate. It gives permission to imagine, but to do so in a way that looks at policy as dynamic rather than static, that you can't just pass a law and think that the problem is accomplished. You know the 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 art of public policy is usually one step forward two steps back that there's always hidden effects there's always changes especially in the sense of economies but also in the sense of political economy right that power and money are inseparable that You know, you go after someone's money, they're going to use power to try to figure out a way around that. And you have to anticipate these things. And that's where I thought the Witness Project was, uh, to your point, and you sort of alluded to this, a different way of presenting research, a different way of presenting knowledge, because... You know, the problem with academia is it's stuck in its tower. It's stuck in these walls. And the the knowledge doesn't always make it out into the public. The knowledge doesn't always permeate into the public sphere. And we live in a golden age of propaganda, right? We live in an age where anyone can put forward an idea. Anyone can make up a reality And so by doing that deliberately, by actually trying to create realities in terms of the Witness Project and inviting other people to kind of participate in those worlds, it's a completely different way of of presenting ideas, of mobilizing knowledge, of, of facilitating participatory research. So can you tell me a bit about where the Witness Project kind of comes from and what role, like what your ideal scenario of how it plays out, like what is your dream for how the Witness project is successful or fruitful? Sure. So
1: uh, first of all, let's define what Witness is. Witness is an open source imaginary world where you can set work of science fiction or climate fiction that can be Books or short stories, or it can be video games, movies, whatever. It's like the Marvel Universe or the Star Trek Universe, but without uh, a copyright uh, on it. I mean, it's 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 uh, of Creative Commons domain. And it came out because initially, when the, we, we came, we came me and, and a bunch of other, you know, people. Some are economists, some are biologists, some are uh, science fiction authors, or or, or readers, or just interested people. We came together under this idea of a science fiction economics lab, we started reading and exchanging impressions, and initially we tried to write academic papers, like uh, rigorous papers on non-existent economies. But that turned out to be kind of difficult and abstract, Uh, and so we said, well, let's do something different, let's try to Use the superpower that humans have, which is the power of storytelling. If I tell you a story and the story is contrived, you will immediately spot it. Ah, that guy would never do that. Uh, It does really hold water that he would... The the bad guy would suddenly turn good uh, at page 300. Bullshit. Uh, And so uh, we would use this... uh, um, Coherence check for on, in stories that it seems to be hardwired into humans, in order to build uh, uh, economies. So not not uh, equations, uh, or maybe the equations would be below the surface, but in the surface of the model, there would be a description of a of a com- human community and how it lives and how it, what, what do what do its buildings look like, what do its streets look like. What, what are people working on? I mean, what are the industrial sectors, if any, that are permanent? How do the institution work? Do institutions support uh, correctly the, the, the economic model or, or do we have a, a, a dissonance? And then if we have a dissonance, we have to go back and, and, and change it again. And so we imagined Witness as a, a, a place where you could, we could do this. Witness is a floating megacity which exists in a post-climate change uh, planet Earth. So it floats on, on the ocean, far from landmass. Maybe they are only, they're only ones out there. We don't really know yet, but it's very large. It, it started as a UN project, so fairly technocratic. This project, by the way, exists. So the concept of a floating city really exists in the real UN, and it was, uh, it was, it was floated, pun intended, in, in the 2010s. But in, in, in the World of Witness, this at some point went awry. So uh, climate change accelerated, the city had to be launched, it was not ready. A lot of people that was were on it, they were on it by chance, they were construction workers building it and they, they stayed in. And not everybody agreed with the uh, enlightened bureaucracy uh, model that the, was intended for it. And so the, the, The the city splintered into districts and districts gave gave themselves uh, different forms and also different economic models. So you have one district will be a a sort of social democracy on steroids. Uh, One district is more anarcho-communitarian, communistic. Another one is more of a religious economy with monasteries playing a big part in, in production.
0: Well, and, and be- why don't you why don't you take a moment to elaborate on that? Because I listened to that episode, right? That talked about, kind of monastic modes of production. And you got into both the history of monasteries, the uh, the Benedictine orders, and how they thought differently about production. And what was fascinating when listening to that episode is I started to think about open source software. I started to think about different technology modes. And, and I think that was kind of the point, that it provokes you to think about different ways in which we could organize our economy.
1: Uh, totally
0: true totally true. I mean, if you get me
1: started on this, I will, I will rant for a long time because it's it's a bit of a it was a bit of an aha moment that I had a few years ago when I when I met with the, with the history of the Benedictines and their economic uh, model, which is extremely successful. And by the way, you're spot on because, uh, fun fact, uh, strictly speaking, the Benedictines are not an order. They are a federation of sovereign monasteries.
0: Huh.
1: And uh, when Uh, This grew as a result of Benedict himself, who instead of founding an order and doing all the song and dance of Vatican politics, trying to get acknowledged by the Pope, etc., he focused on running his own monastery and he wrote the rule, rule capitalized, the rule of Saint Benedict, which is, uh, you can call it a software, a piece of software, which explains how you should run your monastery at a low level. So it doesn't say, uh, for example, we are going to be copying manuscripts uh, so that we can save uh, the Western civilization from uh, the fall of the Roman Empire. They say things like, monks should have their own cells, so they have a place to retire and and discharge their aggressiveness. Um, Monks are not allowed to quarrel. If you have a, a dispute, with your brothers, talk to your superior. Superiors are elected, but then you have to obey them once you elect them. And so on and so forth. So they are they even say things like the, the seller, the monk, seller monk, which is the, the person in charge of the food, etc., should be a jolly person. So it really focuses on human interaction. It's a low-level network protocol and it is open source. Because what happened is that everybody in the early days, people visited uh, Benedict in in his his, uh, monastery of Monte Cassino, and he gave a copy to anybody who wanted, and then people often went out and made their own modifications. The Cistercians and so on, there are are several several forks of the original Benedictine programs. So, in practice, this is exactly an open source, low-level interaction protocol, so not a application software, but a protocol that uh, produced uh, incredible effects that Benedict himself could never have predicted over 15 centuries. So mm-hmm. compare this, please, uh, with uh, uh, the, the trajectory of the blockchain over 13 years. Uh, uh, and, and now these guys, they, you know, they, they, they produce the cop the, the, the scriptoria where they, they basically saved in really, Europe. Western civilization, but because monks in Ireland were copying all the manuscripts. They, the monastery of Cluny at its side Haede, was uh, serving 10,000 hot meals a day to poor people. That's a fun, significant logistic effort. The, this is not in the rule. It's the result of monks being authorized by the rule to do certain things, but they not determined to do them, you see, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. The, the, the way they interact makes it so that this technology, again, like, like AI, like the blockchain, was not good nor bad nor neutral, and it's skewed communitarian, mm-hmm. it's skewed pro social, it's mm-hmm. skewed towards the production of common goods because monks are not allowed to have property, so they produce for everybody.
0: Mm-hmm. But I, to bring it back to literacy, Sorry. it gets people... No, 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 it's fantastic. And it, it gets people thinking about what if we had economic systems that were not motivated by money, right? You that know. were motivated by other values, right? Whether that value be religious, whether that value be social or communal, whether that value's is cultural. I mean, that's what strikes me as the potential of the Witness Project. And what's interesting, how you guys are basically inviting people to 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 be part of this world, to help flesh out and imagine what these worlds would be. Do you want to elaborate a bit on that?
1: Well, uh, there is
0: a second uh, double
1: thinking behind that. So we are, this is, all, this is all open because it doesn't make sense for it not to be open, right? It, mm-hmm. it's, we, we shape it as a wiki. We kind of looked at Wikipedia entries on, uh, on cities and then we made uh, a kind of format so, um, political history, notable people, and of, of course, economy, for every district of witness. And uh, the, the, the ambition is that enough people will get involved, that we will have a corpus of work which we'll, we, can, we can analyze with the, through the lens of ethnography, and that will tell us what kind of affective relationship there is between people and economic models and economic institutions. And that's important. You asked before, you know, what's the end game? You know, what, what do you hope for with this sweetness stuff? That's important because we hope to be part of the transformation of our economies and societies that will hopefully save civilization from the onslaught of climate change and the environmental crisis.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm personally a pessimist here. I don't think we can salvage, uh, we, can, we, can, we can keep to one and a half degrees. I don't think we can keep to two degrees. But I do think that you can ruggedize local economies.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That you can do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that is not a small, a small contribution because it, it, it can change for, for the better your own life if you live in one of those communities and, and that of the people around you. And, but to do that, we need to dream them first. And this well, is what we're doing on witness.
0: And, and I, I think to a point you made in, in your essay around sociopathic innovation, that the pandemic, you know, AI didn't really play a role. You know, in the pandemic, blockchain didn't really play a role. And further what the pandemic, I think also has made us question is the kind of on-demand supply chains that globalization had offered us. So on the one hand, I I see your argument around local responsive economies as mitigating crises, whether that's climate crises, whether that's health crises. But to your uh, bearish or cynical uh, view of climate change, I think we have to plan for crisis. Like, I think we have to plan for catastrophe. I think that the window of our ability to respond has passed, we still need to dramatically reduce, you know, fossil fuel usage and carbon production. But we also have to plan for the consequences of our past actions, which means we need locally responsive economies that have support structures to deal with crises, to deal with hunger, to deal with displacement, to deal with migration. And, and dare I say it, to deal with war and conflict, because people with power and people who see violence as an appropriate response may feel that that's their best bet to maintaining their status or maintaining their privilege. And so that's why I am particularly like the post-climate kind of world that you're trying to articulate because I think it anticipates the other side. It anticipates us getting through the crisis, but also anticipating these kinds of crises. So, as a, a, a kind of closing question or a kind of curveball, and I've been thinking about this as we've been having our conversation, partly because your background as a data scientist, but in particular, your kind of critical perspective of what data science can offer. Like you don't see it as a magic wand. You don't see it as this kind of God that can deliver us from any crisis. And yet that is a dominant perspective, especially here in North America, right? Like the ideology of Silicon Valley is solutionism, right? It's this kind of technology solutionism that data will save us, we just need more data right? That AI will save us. We just need a smarter machine learning model. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts going back to, you know, the, what you were talking about in terms of anthropological economics of verifying whether these models work, verifying whether these orthodoxies work. Can you anticipate the, the, this, I'm calling them the solutionists, the technocrats insisting that their models work, they just need more data, that AI is gonna deliver, we just need more surveillance, we just need more granularity to our data. What is the counter to that? You know, what what is, do, do you ever find yourself tempted by the idea that maybe we just need more data? Or what is the argument against those who say, okay, I get it, my model's flawed, Give me more data, and I'll make it work.
1: Uh, The the, the counters, for me, have been so far basically empirical. In fact, I I took a a course some some time ago about uh, um, computing for data science, and there was a module of it on, on big data. The teacher is a a very smart uh, Santa Fe American professor called Bill Rand. And uh, at one point, uh, you know, Bill was explaining to us this, uh, and he taught us how to do simple big data stuff, you know, map reduce this kind of models that are, um, in that case, this is about computational efficiency. So you have clusters of computers that can uh, s- s- uh, divide the, the work efficiently so that they can crunch uh, a, a very vast quantities of data. And um, these, of course, these models become uh, the computational requirements go up very quickly as you c- complicate your 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 structural model. And so the question was, well, you know, that is it really worth it to do the stuff? Because th- there is clearly a, a, a very sharp diminishing return uh, um, phenomenon to uh, the the specification of the model. So I'll give you an example from football. If you you can have a, a model from football that says the home team always wins. And if you test this model on football data, it predicts significantly better than random. So it's a model, and it works. And it is very easy to compute. You just need zero data. Now, you can try to make a model that predicts better than this. But in order to uh, uh, to, to overperform the model of your own team works always wins, you need a, 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 a humongous amount of data on the age of players, their, their, their physical conditions, the data are not easy to find, they are dirty, you need to clean them. In the end, it's almost never worth it. So a simple model like that, that, that you can explain, you were talking about literacy, but you can explain to an undergraduate in 10 minutes, we'll do 90% of the work. Then you can, you can get to from 90% to 96% accuracy, but then you need a PhD in statistics. Is it worth it? Probably not. It's, it's, it's better to have more people understand more things at 90% than to have fewer people understand fewer things at 96%. Correct? And Bill said, yes, you are right. Uh, however, I can, I can name one uh, domain in which uh, it, it, the, the, the costs of recomputing the model re specifying model using all this data is smaller than its benefit. What is this domain? Targeted advertising. Yes, Bill, but that is a societal bad. So again, this is, yes, you have an economy in which in some cases it is worth to hire a, a, like a superstar data scientist like Bill Rand and he will, yes, he will help you to make your tight advertising better and the result will be less happiness in your economy. will be stressed people
0: buying shit they don't need. See, and that brings us perfectly back to sociopathic innovation, right? That it's almost as if, Everybody needs a kind of, you know, thesis supervisor to say, no, that's a bad idea. Go come up with a better one. Or no, in fact, it's better to have human people make that decision rather than have it be automated. And yet, at least for the last 10 years, there hasn't been anyone to say, no, I don't want a machine to make that decision. Or no, we don't need a machine learning model that's overcomplicated to make those kind of judgments. Instead, it's always been more is better. Automate is better. And it's because either we haven't been aware of that sociopathic innovation or there hasn't been someone to call the emperor out and say you're not wearing any clothes. That's a stupid idea. So perhaps as a final question, and and feel free to, you know, uh, either say you've got no idea or to come up with something completely ludicrous. But what is the counter to sociopathic innovation? How do we as a society either find a voice, individual or collective to say, no, that's a bad idea. I don't like Airbnb. I don't like every affordable uh, apartment in my city being financialized to the point of there being no affordable housing whatsoever. (laughs) You know, how do we as a society uh, have that conversation, have that public intervention so that we can push back against this tide of sociopathic innovation?
1: Yeah, well, that brings me back to witness paradoxically because I don't believe you can counter sociopathic innovation per se. It's, it may be sociopathic, but it is it is endorsed by a, a winning coalition. Uh, so in order to get rid of that, you have to get rid of a whole lot of other things. And for me, that that goes through building alternative winning configurations. So the equilibrium is punctuated, you cannot really mix and match, yeah, you know, I, I want the same society, but let's let's put machine learning back in the box, in the Pandora space. I don't think that's going to work. Mm-hmm. What, what you can do is you can kind of push through and, and get to a, uh, a, a different um, uh, society that uh, uh, will use innovation in a different way, will have different innovation, I don't know. And that will reinforce the ruling coalition in that society, which will turn out to be more humane. Uh, and again, uh, um, th- there are two fantastic uh, uh, science fiction stories about that. One is the, the uh, novel Walk Away by Cory Doctorow, where the society is physical. So there are two uh, coexisting words that he calls default, which is more or less us, a bit more, elaborate in 20 years or well, even worse more financialized whatever and then there is walk away which are people that basically give up on 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 default society they become uh, some papier but they have some some kind of uh, open technology that enable them to survive they go out in superfund uh, uh, sites that nobody wants in the American uh, Northwest uh, and they stay there and they develop their alternative society and then Doctor has a story for which at some point a, a tipping point is reached. So now it's very many people that are, are defaulting and this means default can, can no longer work and then you start to get a conflict. The other story is, a, is a, another science fiction novel called The Ministry for the Future and the author of that is a man called Kim Stanley Robinson and Kim Stanley Robinson has made a heroic effort of putting the society in the future and then detailing all the steps that go from here to there. And, they more or less hold water in a, in a narrative kind of sense. For example, it starts the the, the, the the triggering event is a heat wave in India that kills 20 million people. 20 million people, and that makes it so that uh, the the next time the IPCC conference, uh, the uh, UN panel on climate change say, okay, we are not delivering on on uh, on our targets. Let's create an agency uh, that will help us to do it, which is nicknamed the Ministry for the Future, and then the, the Ministry for the Future starts to have a black wing. So it is a kind of a dark tale because it implies that and it's an artist's rendition, so no, it's not science. You can't transition without some violence. That's what Kim Stanley obviously seems to think. But I will leave you to the rest of the steps, but it's, it's what, what is important is that both these authors not only imagine the different society, but imagine that a way, a credible way that this society can go to that society. This is what you need to do if you want to get rid of sociopathic innovation. You have to get rid of many things. And fortunately, economic anthropology and, and other, uh, other sciences can guide us. You said before, what if you know, we, people didn't work for money? Well, you know what, People have almost never worked for money in human history. This is a very, uh, um, very modern phenomenon in in, uh, in historical terms. Almost all societies that we know of didn't work for money. Yeah. So we have a plenty of material to draw on. And, we can and, definitely do it.
0: And maybe that's a good point to end on in suggesting that what if those blockchain idiots, in their obsession with the future of money, make such a farce, that everyone just goes, you're right, money is arbitrary. We don't need that nonsense anymore and move on into a, a post-money uh, society, whatever that might entail.
1: We'll see about that. I, 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 <laughs> I don't want to be too dismissive of the blockchain people. They're very smart people in there. I respect their, their work and conviction, I... but I do want to challenge them on, on the results that uh,
0: I... this technology is delivering. I agree with everything you say. I think it's far more likely that they will be the source of our future tyranny than uh, the result of any liberation. But I digress in making a final joke, a a joke to all our blockchain listeners who probably tuned out earlier because we're no longer spinning their orthodoxy. (laughs) Thank you, Alberto, for what I thought was a very uh, freewheeling, uh, far-ranging, intellectually stimulating conversation. I think the Science Fiction Economics Lab is an absolutely brilliant concept, and Witness is a fantastic example of how scholars, researchers, artists, and policy provocateurs can be uh facilitating knowledge, facilitating ideas, uh facilitating a better society, uh especially in terms of imagining one that reconciles uh climate change and our need to to, to deal with it. Uh, thank you very much, Alberto. I, I hope I might be able to call upon you again, especially if you pen another said brilliant essay that so perfectly articulates uh, the critical thinking of our moment. Do you have any last thoughts, uh, final things that you would like our audience to know either about yourself or the world that they're facing?
1: Well, the, the, the one thing is all these things that we've been talking about uh, which you presented generously as my work are in fact collective, you know. uh, Yes. I'm part of a group which is if we we have our own ideology and our own ideology is in collective intelligence we trust. This is why Witness is a wiki, the science fiction economics lab is fully open etc. So my invitation would be to whoever is is listening, you know, do step in, do feel free. This is your space and we believe that Everybody uh, who engages with the right heart has some, some contribution to make a PhD in economics is definitely not required. In fact, it might be a counter indication.
0: Right on. And, and to your point, right? No man is an island. No person creates on their own. We create because of the people we collaborate with and the communities that we practice in. So I think that's an excellent point to end on. Uh, Thank you very much, Alberto. This has been a fantastic conversation. And I encourage everyone to follow Alberto on Twitter. He's quite prolific. And to check out the Science Fiction Economics Labs, uh, in part to learn about some of Alberto's colleagues and some of the other people he works with and participate in the Witness Project. Thanks again. We'll talk to you all soon.
1: Thank you, Jesse. Bye, everyone.